It is not fame that I desire, nor stature in my brother's high. I pray it said about my life that I lived more to build your name than mine. For the cause of Christ. Thank you, Pastor Tolman and the pagans. Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. First John 4 tells us that God is love. God is love. And uh, we've been looking here in chapter 13 specifically following chapter 12. 12 is about spiritual gifts. The church at Corinth was a fleshly church at this time. And they were struggling. They were overlooking sin. They had to be corrected about that. Um, they were caught up with pride and arrogance, comparing one another, comparing themselves with one another. And the Bible tells us it's unwise to compare ourselves with one another. And they had to be corrected about wanting the best, the glory for themselves. They wanted to be honored. They wanted everybody to look at them. This is what this church was characterized by. You can imagine this members throughout the congregation who were more interested in their own glory than in God's glory. And uh, the song that was just sung is in opposition to that. No, I want God's glory more than my own glory. And, uh, and so the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, was writing to them. He was correcting things. He's teaching them about spiritual gifts. But then he's also teaching them what the motivation for serving the Lord should be. What should be our motivation for, for uh, the work of the ministry, for exercising the gifts that God has given to us. Um, what should be our, what should be at the heart, the core of uh, why we do what we do. And it brings us to, to chapter 13. Last week in the first three verses, we saw that words without love are meaningless. They're empty words without love. We can say, I love you, but if it, there's not a heart of genuine sacrificial, the act of the will kind of love, agape love, then words are, are just meaningless, they're empty. We also saw in verse 2 that wisdom without love has no value. You can have wisdom, wisdom, that's good. Wisdom, there's, there's two kinds of wisdom the Bible teaches. There's wisdom that is from above, from the Lord, and there's wisdom that's from beneath. It's sensual, uh, earthly. Uh, James actually defines this, God defines this at a wisdom from below as devilish, satanic. Okay, so... Satan himself has wisdom, but there's two kinds of wisdom. Um, there's wisdom of this world, and there's wisdom from the Lord, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, what kind of wisdom are we exercising? And he says, wisdom without love has no value. And then we noticed in verse 3 that works without love profit nothing. Let's look at verse 1. I'm going to read down through the chapter. Again, I'm not going to preach through the whole chapter today. But I, I want these words. This is an incredible description of love. 
I was pondering, and we don't have time to, to get off track today at all, but I was pondering um, how we know that the Lord loves us. And of course, we know that because he gave his son for us. I was pondering who he loved us in, in that we did not love him. We, we were sinners, lost, wayward, intentionally rebelling against him not loving him, and he died for us. And so we know he loves us for that reason. I was pondering just the love of God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and and how on the cross he's saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Um, I'm pondering how he gave himself for us. He was willing uh, to drink the cup of suffering um, when when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane and sweating as it were great drops of blood, um, not not my will but thine be done. I, I ponder his love for us when he during his earthly ministry he looks upon uh, a city and he weeps. He's com- full of compassion and kindness and goodness and long suffering and. Uh, Throughout the Bible, we can see we can see pictures of Christ in Joseph forgiving his brothers, um, suffering patiently when he didn't deserve any of that, and we can see others in the Bible who follow Christ and and thereby they share and they love others. They love others. They share the love of God with others. This chapter is a is a description using language of who Jesus Christ is. This is who he is, described with words. Let's look at it, verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Now here's the description. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity, that is this intentional love of the will, never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. He's talking about spiritual gifts now. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Um, whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is done in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. For now, we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these 
is charity. Sacrificial love. An act of the will. A choice. Choosing to love someone, some people, who do not love you back. Choosing to love when you are unloved. This is what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. I think all of us in this room this morning would say, almost, perhaps not all, but almost all of us in this room would say, Pastor Ferguson, I want to be a follower of Christ. And throughout our lives, there are roadblocks that are laid down, stumbling blocks. We are wronged, we're offended. Sometimes others hurt us intentionally, perhaps. We misunderstand brothers and sisters in Christ, or they misunderstand us. They may not appreciate us. They may not love us as we think we need to be loved or ought to be loved. And yet, to follow Christ means that we love anyway. So I want to ponder this passage in light of the context today, and I think it'll be a blessing. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that this church, this assembly, your church, Father, I pray that you would help us to be a church that genuinely follows our Lord and our Savior. And not in word only, but in deed, in action, in love. Father, this goes against our, our nature. And so we need your help. You tell us that this kind of love is a fruit of the Spirit. It's, it's produced by Christ in us and when we yield to him. And when we do not, Father, we are carnal and selfish. And uh, we compare and we judge and we gossip and we will not forgive. And Lord, I pray this morning as your spirit works, I pray that there would be confession of sin in this room as the word is preached throughout the message. And Father, I pray that there would be repentance. And I pray, Father, that you would purge us and help us to love and truly be followers of Christ. We need your enabling. And I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, these attributes of love that are laid out before us. They are beautiful. There's a, there seem, it, it's a pretty brief, succinct portion of scripture, but it's overwhelming when you begin to look at it and begin to ponder it. And we're going to ponder it this morning, but the attributes of love as they're laid out in this passage are painted for us against the backdrop of a very unloving group of people. And that was the church at Corinth. Um, they were selfish. Um, they were gossiping, they were judging, they were not forgiving, they were not speaking truth and love, they were disingenuous, they were very zealous for their own reputation, they wanted so badly for people to think highly of them. That's what they wanted. That was most important to them. That, and we can, we can, we can understand this, we can, we can uh, contemplate 
what that would be like for us, that we would care more about what other people think about us within this congregation than pleasing the Lord and God being glorified. And so the church at Corinth was marked by chaos. Uh, they were marked by they were church marked by strife. There was jealousy. There was harm. There were critical spirits that were part of the church at Corinth. It really was a disaster. And I don't want to dwell on that because it could be downright discouraging to think about. But that's who the church of Corinth was. Um, when I think about love, I think of 1 John 4, verse 10, where it says, Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. Um, I'm going to read to you from Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. And I want, I'm going to read this before we get into the passage of our, our text this morning because I don't want you to feel, I don't, I don't want anybody this morning to be, to be overly burdened down by the message. I don't want to, you to leave here today discouraged. Um, you know, I don't measure up to the love of Christ. Um, no, Christ lives within us. Christ produces his love through us. Okay, so he's the one. What we have to understand is the way we love, the way we're capable of loving, why we tend to love in our flesh is not agape love. There are different kinds of love. We talked about those last week, but not agape love. Agape love comes from the Lord Jesus Christ working in us, working through us, and you and I submitting to him and thereby loving others the way Christ loved us. So there's a natural way for us to love people. There are natural reasons why we love people. And everybody in this room loves different people for different reasons. But the love we're going to look at in 1 Corinthians 13 is the love of Christ. And that's what God tells his church that kind of love needs to be your motivation for serving one another, for assembling, for coming together, for worshiping the Lord together. That agape love is the, is the motivating love. So uh, common reasons for loving, what are they? Well, in, first, or in Matthew chapter 5, and you don't need to turn there, I'm just going to read this for sake of illustration. In verse 43, Jesus said this. He said, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. That makes sense, right? Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, why? that's very practical. Love your neighbor because he's not going anywhere. And so it benefits you to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Why? Because he's your enemy. <laughs> he would destroy you, steal from you, kill you perhaps. So that makes sense. Verse 44, Jesus says, But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. So here we have enemies. We have people cursing. We have people hating. We have people despitefully using you and persecuting you. And what are we supposed to do according to our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, love them, bless them, do good to them, pray for them. That's what we're supposed to do. He's talking about loving 
is talking about following himself. He's talking to his disciples. And I understand that everyone here this morning is not necessarily a disciple of Christ. We have people who, now that's God's will for his children, those who are saved, to be followers of him. But we would understand from Scripture that there were many who believed upon Christ for salvation, but were not his genuine followers, were not disciples of him. Does that make sense? There's a difference. There are some who are saved, so as by fire, they're they're not living a life as a disciple of Christ. They're not going to follow him. They're not going to hell because they believed upon him, but they're not genuine disciples of Christ. So I understand this morning we have folks, um, and maybe you've decided, you know what, I'm saved. God, thank you for my salvation, but I am not going to go all the way in following Christ. So he's talking to his disciples. Look at, or listen to verse 45. He says, he's telling to love them. He says, that ye may be the children of your father, which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise, up on, rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? That's Christ's question. Because that makes sense, right? If you love people who love you, what's the big deal? Not a big deal at all, really. Do not even the publicans do the same? I mean, the unsaved people love people who love them. An unsaved person, it's very natural. If you give them a $100 bill, they're going to be your friend. If you give them $10,000, they'll be a better friend. They'll love you more. If you give them $50,000, if you do good for them more and more, if you love them more and more in those ways, they will love you back. It's very simple. It's not hard to understand. It's an earthly, fleshly kind of love. Verse 47, and if ye salute or welcome your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publican so. And then he says, be ye therefore perfect or complete, mature, even as your father, which is in heaven, is perfect. And I say that to you right up front in the message, really before we even get to the text. Because as we think about what love does, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. What does love do? Love is not just something that sits back and, and we think to ourselves, oh, I love them. And we do nothing. Um, I love you, but it results in nothing. No, no. Love acts. Love works. Love produces action. Okay, this kind of agape, self-sacrificial, um, selfless act of the will, this kind of love, the love of Christ does something. What does it do? And I want to look at that this morning. But as we do so, this kind of love is not meant for the people who love us already. This kind of love is meant for everyone, even those who may have mistreated us or maybe are still mistreating us. So I'm going to, I'm going to give you several thoughts from the passage. Number one, look at verse four. Love acts kindly. Love is kind. Love acts kindly. Look at verse four, the beginning part. He says this charity. And that's the word for agape love. Charity suffereth long 
and is kind. It suffers long. So love is patient, we see from the passage. It suffers long. It's patient. Um, Patient with people. The language that's written here, the emphasis is for the church. In fact, love is patient. It's patient with people. It's patient with our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's talking, it's emphasizing relationships within the church. And to say that we're patient means that we're slow to becoming angry. We're slow to becoming frustrated with dealing with people who may trouble us, who may grieve us at times. Difficult people is what he's talking about. He's saying to you as a church, the church at Corinth, and we can make application to our own hearts and lives. Um, you, love is patient. Um, he also says love is kind. Love is kind. Kind has the idea of, the word has the idea of being useful. Kindness is not something that is superficial. It's not on the surface. In other words, this is not just the smile. I kind of manipulate my face into a smile and say, it's good to see you when I really don't care about you at all. No, love, agape love, is it's useful, it's practical, it's deep. It goes below the surface. Uh, kindness is finding ways to help others. Maybe that's comforting somebody else. This kind of love would lead lead us to comfort one another in times of grief, or it would lead us to be an encouragement to others. And there are different ways we could encourage one another. We could encourage one another when we're struggling with personal grief or maybe personal failure. How many of us ever personally fail? Okay. Um, so sometimes within a group of people, there could be the, the natural response to someone who's failing might be, ooh, when love is kind, it's useful, it would lead us to go to the person, to encourage them. Uh, maybe we would, this, this kind of love, this useful kindness, this love would lead us to share knowledge with one another, to share truth with one another. Or it, this could be wisdom. This is how you do something. This is what we did. Well, we were there. Or maybe we weren't there, so it's going to lead me to pray. But love is kind. Maybe it's companionship. Okay. So this is a very practical, this kindness. And and this, and again, I say to you, this is even for those who perhaps have wronged you. Or maybe those who have pulled away from you, who are distant. Or maybe they've been critical of you. Or maybe, or, or, or maybe, uh, Maybe they've treated you poorly in the past. The point is, love is useful. It finds ways to minister to people no matter who they are. Satan loves to drive wedges. And sometimes in relationships, whether it's a husband-wife relationship or a parent-child-children relationship or friendships or church relationships within church members, Satan loves to drive in wedges. You know, they didn't say hi to me this Sunday. Or I walked past them, they didn't even look at me. I wonder what, I, they think they're better than I am. You know, these kind of ridiculous things. Um, you know, I said this and they didn't respond in a way that I wanted. This, you know, could be in a marriage relationship or a, a sibling relationship even. And uh, love is kind. It's very useful. It acts kindly. So number number one is love acts kindly. Number two, love acts humbly. Love acts humbly. Now you can we can see. I'm going to give you these these thoughts, but 
We can see all of these in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was kind. Okay, he he did he was patient. He did suffer long. He was and is kind. A very useful kind of kindness. And then number two, love acts humbly. Look at look at verse four, the middle part. Verse four, the middle part. He says, "Charity envieth not." Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Look at verse 5. Doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Thinketh no evil. Now, don't lose sight. I know it's February. Uh, This last week we had celebrated Valentine's Day, you know, and this is the love chapter. So we could get off track. If we're just thinking about what love is, okay, as if it's sterile and by itself, I I don't want you to do that. I want you to think about it in light of you serving within the local church, you ministering to your brothers and sisters in Christ. What's at the heart of it? Why, when you gather, what's your motivation? What's what's your motivation for your your fellowship, your relationships, your conversations, okay? And, And he says, love acts humbly. Love doesn't envy. You notice there he says, charity envieth not, in the middle of verse 4. Love doesn't envy. Love isn't jealous about other people. What your truck do you drive? I wonder how much he pays for that. Must be nice to be so young. Right, we, we could go down that list. We're not going to, but love, love doesn't envy. It's not jealous of other people. And by that, I mean, love doesn't compare. It doesn't resent other people. It doesn't resent other people. Love doesn't resent their, the successes of others. You get to go on, you got to go on a vacation where? Wow. Hey, that's wonderful. And, and not just say it, but mean it. It's wonderful. Wow, what was it like? Did you have a good time? Did you get any rest? Did you get to what did you get to do? Hey, that is incredible. I'm so I'm so happy for you. You see, the fleshly side of things would be like, wow, must be nice. We've never gotten to do that. You know, that's terrible. That's not love. That's not Christ likeness. Love is happy for the successes of others. Love is happy for their place in life. Happy or, or love is is happy that they're handsome or that they're beautiful or that they're young or that they're healthy. Or love is 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 rejoices that they have been blessed with possessions or their position in life or them getting a raise or them having success or or maybe their family. You know, God is God is blessing. They are walking with the Lord. God is grace, being gracious to them. They're having success with their children. They're having success in their marriage. Love, love is not envious of that. It doesn't hold it against them. is isn't disgusted because their life is good. Okay. Love rejoices in everything that others have, even if the one loving has very little. And you can see Christ's likeness in that. If you have someone who has very little and yet, they're not covetous of their brother or sister in Christ. They rejoice that their brother or sister in Christ has been blessed. See, people that you love, you, you wish that 
they have every possible good thing. And the more they have, the happier we are because that's how love behaves. Love does not envy. Love doesn't brag. You see in there, the end of verse 4, it vaunteth not itself. Love doesn't brag. And the word here is the word for windbag. When it says uh, vaunteth not itself, it's the idea of a windbag. I love that. Um, Hope you don't have anybody in mind in particular. But uh, outward bragging is designed to make other people feel inferior. Okay, look what I have. And jealousy wants what others have. And bragging wants to make others want what we have. And this isn't love. And uh, notice further on, love is not puffed up. And I use the term love is not arrogant. Love is not arrogant. Arrogance is the driving motivation behind bragging. It's a high opinion of oneself. It's conceit. And uh, only, only humble people love. People who are humble love. Arrogant people love themselves. Uh, uh, Christ loved others. He chose to love people who didn't love him. So arrogant people don't love. They're not interested in other people's issues. They're not interested in other people's lives. They don't desire to be patient with other people. They don't care about being useful to other people. They're, they're, they're more, ha- more than happy to brag endlessly in front of other people because they are consumed with themselves. Humble people love. Be humble. Now look at verse 5, the beginning part. It says, love does not act unseemly. Love does not act unseemly. It means to behave dishonorably. Love doesn't behave dishonorably, uh, inappropriately, or, or ill-mannered, or rudely. This same word for unseemly is found in Romans chapter 1 and verse 27, and it speaks of something that is beyond rude. It's speak, that verse is speaking of homosexuality, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving the due penalty for their error. And this is rudeness gone to its ultimate limit. And the actual root of the verb means to be shapeless or to have no form. It's a kind of outrageous behavior, an out-of-line behavior, an out-of-order behavior. And it was going on in the Corinthian church. And I'm not saying... Uh, specifically homosexuality, what I'm saying is unseemly. It was indecent. It was not love. It was not the act of a will loving for one another. This was an indecency, an immorality of selfishness and self-righteousness and arrogance. And God is rebuking the church at Corinth, and he's saying, you're not following Christ. You're all consumed in in you, but you're not you're not loving the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're not following Him. In chapter eleven, the the, the church at Corinth tell, or the, the First Corinthians tells us that the women were out of order, and and also the congregation was out of order when coming to the Lord's table. They were acting selfishly. They were even engaging in drunkenness. I mean. They would come for the Lord's Supper, and it was all about, well, look what I brought. I brought steak. What do you have? You have a sandwich? That's <laughs> too bad for you. I mean, this was their attitude. You know, they were self, they were, think about that. Christ had told them, this do in remembrance of me. And we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper tonight as, as a church. 
And so we're to, do, we're to remember his sacrifice. We're to remember his love. We're to remember the cost of our salvation. And, and they were getting together and they were, they were drinking to the point where they were drunk. They were completely in the flesh. Others in the congregation were out of order morally. And the point is this, love does not act unseemly. Also, I noticed in, that, in this passage, love doesn't seek its own. You see it there. Love does not seek its own. In verse number five, true love is always unselfish. Love is selflessness. It's okay to be zealous of spiritual things. It's okay to be zealous about spiritual gifts, but, to, but seek, to, seek to be a blessing to others, not to receive glory for oneself, not to receive exaltation for oneself. Self-elevation is the opposite of love. Love is unselfish. It never demands precedence. It never demands recognition. It never demands applause. It doesn't demand consideration. It doesn't care whether it's honored or not. It's been a little while since this conversation, but one of our deacons and I were having a conversation, and uh, this particular individual has served you as a congregation greatly and without recognition. And and I, in conversation, mentioned to him, I said, thank you very much, right? You've served our church. And his immediate response was, I don't want any recognition, any recognition. And that's his heart. And, uh, I think that is the heartbeat of your deacons. And it ought to be the heartbeat of our church. And I think it is. I think there is that. Every one of us, though, struggle at times with, I want to be recognized. Doesn't anybody see what I'm doing? Does anybody know how much work I put into this or what it costs me to be available? And no one cares. You know, that's our flesh. And, and, and we need to have the mindset of love does not seek its, seek its own. It doesn't care whether it's honored. In Galatians 6 and verse 2, it says, Bear ye one another's burdens. Think about that. Speaking of a church, bear ye one another's burdens. Are burdens fun, uh, enjoyable things? Are they like, hey, let's a, let's a potluck. Let's get together and have a good time, you know? Uh, what do you think when you think of burdens? Is that a good thing, a good time, or a rough time? What do you think? It's rough. But he tells us, bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill ye the law of Christ. That's the law of love. How do we love? We love by bearing one another's burdens. And Jesus did that all the way from Bethlehem to Calvary. He never insisted on his own way. He never insisted on his own rights. He lost himself in the lives of, lives of others. In Mark 10, verse 45, the Bible says, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, or excuse me, came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus served all the way to his death. All the way through his life, he said, for I, came I, for I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, not my will, but thine be done. Love always and only thinks of others. It is consumed with others and utterly indifferent to its own self. Look, look further on in verse 5. It says, love is not easily provoked. It's not easily provoked. And that means a sudden outburst. 
It's not easily provoked. Don't raise your hand. How many of us can be easily provoked? Okay, don't raise your hand. Nobody move, right? But we all can be. And it's normally disgusting when it happens. Um, shameful, embarrassing. Okay, I'll stop. Um, but love, true love is not easily provoked. It, this terminology, easily provoked, is used a few times in the New Testament. And the places where it's found gives us some insight into what it means. The Apostle Paul, you remember he arrived in Athens. And the book of Acts recounts this for us. He intended to rest from the difficulties from the prior meetings. And in Acts 17, verse 16, while he was waiting for his friends, Silas and Timothy, to join him, the Bible says that Paul's spirit was provoked. It was provoked within him while he was observing the city. And it was a city full of idols. Paul was upset. Paul was irritated. But it was a good kind of upset in that situation. It was a good kind of irritation because he was irritated about the idols. He was irritated about the idolatry. He was agitated about the conditions of the city and the false religion and what it was doing to people and how it was against God. It was a righteous kind of provocation, the kind of provocation that caused Jesus to make a whip, you remember. And on two separate occasions to clean out the temple at the beginning of his earthly ministry and at the end of his earthly ministry. You see, there is a time for holy anger. There is a time for righteous wrath. And that is true even of God. But love is not made angry over, and please hear this, personal offenses. Love is not made angry over personal offenses. We've been, on, Sunday, on Wednesday nights, we've been doing a study about different giants that we face. And the one we've looked at for the past two Wednesday nights is the, the giant of anger. And we took one Wednesday and we looked at what righteous indignation is, how God is angry at times, slow to anger. We, we've studied that. And then we looked at what, what ungodly or unrighteous anger is like. And, and so often, even Christians or Bible believers, we are angry and in a wrathful, wrong, sinful sort of way. And, and, and this kind of righteous anger... Um, it's not over personal offenses. The Apostle Paul never retaliated to all of the injuries that came to him. He was angry over what was being done against God. That is true for the Lord Jesus Christ as well. Look at verse number five again, the latter part. Love forgives. Love forgives. <clears throat> it says there, it thinketh no evil. Thinketh no evil. This is an accountant. Accountant's word. Love doesn't keep records. Love doesn't keep records. Can I ask you this morning, are you keeping record of the wrongdoings that someone has done to you? Love doesn't keep records. This word is used to describe the pardoning work of God. How he does not impute. Another way this word is translated in our English Bible, impute our sins to us. He doesn't hold us accountable for them. He has paid the price through the Lord Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ. He's paid the price for all of our sins. And the Bible tells us that God chooses to remember our sins no more. 
It's not that God, and I've said this to you before, it's not that God is suffering from some sort of supernatural theological amnesia. God can't remember. No, God knows everything. He knows every one of our sins. But he chooses not to hold them against us. That is amazing. Praise God. Praise God. We have offended him deeply. We have offended him grievously. We have sinned against him at the highest level repeatedly. And God loves us and he chooses not to remember them. I mean, it is amazing. And into this church, the church at Corinth, God is delivering this message to them. And he's saying to them, you haven't been loving each other. You have not been loving one another. You're all consumed about these spiritual gifts. You're all consumed about serving God and, and getting some, getting some uh, being appreciated. And others looking at you and saying, wow, what a servant. What an amazing person. Wow, they, I didn't know they had all the gifts. Amazing. Tongues too? You've got to be kidding me. What a person they are. And he says, you're not loving. You're not motivated by the right thing. Because love forgives. Love thinketh no evil. What happens when we're saved is indicated in excuse me, Psalm 32 and repeated in Romans 4 and in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where it says, Blessed is the man or happy is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Happy is the man who God does not remember their sins and hold them accountable for their sins. Happy is that person. How many of us have wronged somebody else? We've sinned against someone else. We all have, haven't we? More than we can remember. What kind of a relationship do you have with a person that you have wronged? If one you continue to sin against them and offend them and hurt them. Or two, they will not forgive you. They hold it against you. What kind of a relationship do we have in that scenario? None. There is no relationship. And so if we're the offender, ask for forgiveness, repent of the sin, and seek to follow the Lord and do good, and love them, do right to that person. And if you're the offended, forgive. Choose not to keep a record. Because if you do, there will be no relationship there. It is impossible to have that relationship. And there are churches that have come apart, that have ceased to exist because the members within the church Hold ought against one another. They will. They choose to remember it. They choose to uh, uh, to think about it. To 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 bring up those memories. To to keep the coals burning. To add a little fuel to the fire occasionally. You remember when you did this? You know, in this, and it's awfully quiet in here. And I'm not meaning to be discouraging to any of us. But some of our marriages are struggling or relationships between parents and children or children and parents are struggling because we we won't let it go. We won't let it go. It's not that you I'm not asking you to forget that the offense happened or what the offense was. God does not 
in that sense, I said this, this, he remembers. He chooses not to hold us. He, choose not, he chooses not to hold it over our heads. That's the difference. So, so love doesn't keep a record of our sin. Our sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west, buried in the depths of the deepest sea and remembered no more. This is the model of love. Love acts humbly. Number three, love acts purely. Look at verse six. Love acts purely. It says in verse six, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Again, this is describing our Lord. This is describing what the spirit wants to do in us. Um, rejoiceth not in iniquity, has the idea of to be saddened by unrighteousness. But it rejoiceth in the truth, it joys in the truth. And I'll ask you, do you, do you rejoice in iniquity? Ugh. I, think, I think maybe maybe in some ways we all can do this. I think it's too characteristic of human nature to take pleasure in other people's sins. It should never be a description of who we are as the followers of Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes people love to gossip, right, about other people who in our minds are worse than we are. Have you ever done that? Yeah? Okay, this is who we used to be. This is our sin nature. It's not who we ought to be. It's not who Christ is. And so people can find some kind of bizarre satisfaction in the iniquities of other people, because it makes us feel better about ourselves, right? We're sitting in the position of the judge. I, did, did you know what they did? I can't believe what they did. They should have done this. They should have done that. They, why didn't they do that? It just, by the way, it's not good for your mental health or emotional health. Besides being ungodly. We can always find people whose sins are different than ours. And that's part of being human. And it comes into the life of the church. What is behind gossip anyway? We ought to hate gossip. The treacherous sin in gossip is self-promotion by relishing in the fall of another person, relishing in the iniquity of another person. And this is more distant maybe than a personal offense. But this is not loving. This is not agape love. There's nothing loving about it. Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't do that. I think what's amazing and maybe shameful when we do this is we're not God. In other words, we're not righteous. We ourselves are not without sin. And so to talk about somebody else and their faults and their sinfulness, it is, there is so much hypocrisy there to bring it up. And to go on and on and on about it, or just a little bit here and there to dabble in. It is so hypocritical to talk about their sin and what their problem is, how we can't believe it, etc., etc. And I don't, by the way, catch this wind, okay, within Trinity Baptist Church. This is not what I believe that we are as a congregation. But it should not be there. It is not Christ-like. So don't rejoice in iniquity. But love does rejoice in the truth, it says in verse number six. Love tells the truth, and it rejoices to tell the truth. Love is honest. It doesn't lie to flatter. It doesn't lie to falsely protect. Love rejoices in truth, and it will always speak the truth. Love celebrates the, uh, the honesty and integrity of others. Love, 
Loving people uh, tell the truth because telling the truth builds strong relationships. Telling lies destroys relationships. And sometimes the truth is painful, but we speak the truth in love. Sometimes it is hard to tell the truth, but it's always best to tell the truth. And sometimes the truth is encouraging and comforting. And sometimes the truth is convicting and it's painful and it brings condemnation. But loving people, people who love, tell the truth. Is it Proverbs that's, that the truth, and I'm summarizing what it says, but hates those, the person who lies hates the person they're lying to. Because we love ourselves so much. We will lie for a lot of reasons to make people think good of us, think well of us, etc. But a person who lies actually hates the person we're lying to. Uh, one more truth. Um, from the passage. Number one, love acts kindly. Number two, love acts humbly. Number three, love acts purely. Number four, and finally, love acts patiently. Love acts patiently. Look at verse seven. It says that love beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. So what is he saying here? Well, love puts up with the faults of others. It beareth all things. It even has the idea of covering the faults of others. It's bearing all things, not in the sense of putting up with everything, but in the sense of desiring to cover the ugliness rather than make sure everybody knows about it. Growing up, or growing up, as our children have grown up, we've worked hard to teach them not to tattle on everything. Some things you need to come to mom and dad about. But other things you need to take care of. You need to deal with it between you and your sibling. And not yelling, not going hands-on, but with kindness, with love, forgiving one another. We're teaching them how to get along, how to work together. But I don't want my children, I don't want to just raise them to get along with one another. I want to teach them to follow Christ. They're going to have interpersonal relationships the rest of their lives. After I'm long gone off this earth, they'll be having interpersonal relationship with neighbors and children and spouses and relatives and church family. I want them to follow Christ. I want them to know how to love. We don't need to, to tattle to make sure that everybody knows what someone else has done. We have to teach them to love Because it is not natural for them to love. It's not natural for us to love. And when a spouse can do nothing but broadcast the faults of his mate or her mate, that's not love because love covers. I remember when Cindy and I were first married. And um, I don't know how we came to this. I don't remember it being particularly premarital counseling with Pastor Saunders. Um, I can... I can remember we came to an agreement that there would be things we would disagree about. There would be times we would not get along, but we were not going to go to our parents or our family about each other. Because here's the thing. Forgiveness would be given. Reconciliation would be had. Restoration would be had to our relationship. But if I've been going to my family and saying what was frustrating me about my wife, and Cindy were to go to her family or friends 
and tell them what was frustrating her about me. And of course, our, our opinion would both be, well, he's wrong. And, and my opinion would be, well, she's wrong. And if we go outside of one another and we're spilling this outside, what happens is the two of us can come back together and be reconciled. But now they haven't been reconciled. We've, we've actually brought other people into the offense. Love puts up with the faults of others. So, so don't broadcast the faults of your spouse. Peter wrote, for charity covereth the multitude of sins. Love warns at times. Love it speaks the truth. It's going to warn. Love exhorts. Yes, love rebukes. And love covers all of those things. Uh, look again here at the passage. It believeth all things. And, and by that it means love is not suspicious. Love is not suspicious. It, it just believes the best. It's not suspicious. It doesn't go through life with a cynical suspicion. It goes through life believing the best because love seeks the best so strongly. I mean, this is amazing to me. And to all of us, I think we read these things and we, we hear this. And this is the love of Christ condensed, boiled down. I mean, this is amazing. This is agape love. This is, as I told you last week, this is not of this earth. This kind of love is not of this world. You can have eros, that is of this world. Um, you know, you, uh, phileo love to a degree would be of this world, though there is a godliness to that. The Bible teaches us. Storge love would be of this world. It's not mentioned in the Bible anywhere. But agape love, before it came out in the New Testament, it, was, it almost didn't exist at all. It's not of this world. And so as we, we ponder these truths, there is a conviction. Because it goes against our flesh entirely. It, there's a, there's a, a curiosity because it's, it's new, it's different. This is not what I feel. This is God loving me. And now he's telling me to love specifically in the context, my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm not supposed to be suspicious. Just waiting. Oh, yeah. Oh, I know. I knew that was going to happen. I saw that coming. No, that's not love. That might be earthly wisdom. That's not love. It hopes all things. Not only is it not suspicious, it's suspicious, but it hopes all things. Are you like that? Do you hope all things? It just keeps on hoping. And what, is, what, is, what are we hoping in? Well, our hope isn't in the person. And our hope isn't in a program, but our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the failures may be great, but they're never final. And the Holy Spirit is always in the process of cleansing. And that's why Jesus told Peter to forgive 70 times 7, 490 times. Keep forgiving. Why? Because we're all in a process of... Love is optimistic. It keeps loving because it keeps hoping. And when, even when trust is shaken, love, sacrificial agape love, keeps hoping in the Lord to do a work, meanwhile being faithful where he has us. The Bible also tells us in this passage that love endures all things. Look at the term there. It says, endureth all things. Now, this is a military term, and it has the idea of to sustain. To sustain the fight, to stay in the fight, not to give up, not to run away, not to abandon your post, 
not to go AWOL. Love endures all things. And we're not talking about a minor annoyance here. Endureth is a word for life and death. Endureth, endureth, love, agape love, endureth all things. Horrible opposition, violence at times, persecution, suffering, genuine suffering. Agape love just doesn't die. It never really gives up. It endures through everything. And this is really the crescendo of love. Love bears all hurts and wounds and disappointments. It, It believes the best about others in spite of the wounds. It gently throws this covering over their faults. And when the person who is loving is betrayed, love still hopes because God is love. And God is still working. And God can save. And God can deliver. And when hope seems lost, love still endures with this triumphant confidence that the God who is still God is still sovereign and he is still able. Love just holds on. And this is what this is what should bind churches together. This is what binds a church together. The love of God, that the Holy Spirit of God has shed abroad in our hearts, according to Romans. This kind of love that Paul told the, told the church at Thessalonica, you have no need that I write unto you about these things because God has already done this work in your hearts and in your lives. And that is the truth. If you are a child of God, the Spirit of God lives inside of you. The Spirit of Christ, God who is love, He has made you a new creature. He has made you to love one another. And it is a matter of you and me choosing I am going to follow Christ. I am going to follow Christ. This is not a love of convenience. This is not a love of reciprocation. You love me, I love you back. You compliment me. Hey, nice hair. Thanks, you too. Wow, what a loving relationship that is. No, no, this is not a love of reciprocation or or convenience. This is an act of the will. I'm going to love. And yes, there's application to marriage. And yes, there's, a, there's application to interpersonal relationships. But this is for the church. So choir members, when you, when you assemble today to practice and you do this almost 52 weeks out of the year and you give an hour or more of your time to practice singing and then you come and you bless us or special music or ushers or guys who are mowing the lawn or ladies who work in the kitchen or those who work in the RU program or our children's ministries, or whether it's those of us who are on staff, it's not its not the position, it's not the prominence, it's not the applause, it's not the recognition, it's not so we can be seen. That's not why we... The motivation is love. Because there's a follower of Christ, and a follower of Christ, and a follower of Christ, No matter what your role may be within the ministry of serving Christ and his body, your motivation is love. Your motivation is love. Pastor Tolman, I'm going to change things up as we close here. I'd like us to turn to our hymnals in hymn number 113. 113.